is our young adult Sunday school class. Uh, the primary purpose of this time is to sit under the scriptures together, and we'll uh, discuss after we hear them. But um, if you guys would turn to Revelation 4, uh, we have been going through the book of Revelation for about two months now. We'll spend uh, the rest of this semester, a little bit of next semester, in this book. Uh, so far in the book, we have seen uh, the Lord Jesus uh, speak to particular churches, um, and after these next couple of chapters, we're going to see God close history and deliver his people, and save, or sorry, and uh, judge his enemies. So, um, and the rest of Revelation will flow from these two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, and what we see there. Uh, but as we get there, okay, uh, in the age of iPhones, when each of us has a very powerful uh, camera, in our pockets almost at all times, uh, we have kind of a unique temptation, and that is to try to capture our lives with pictures instead of just enjoying our lives. Uh, the person trying to get the perfect Instagram-worthy sunset picture is not actually enjoying the sunset. When I am trying to take a selfie of me and my three children to send to my wife at work, I am not enjoying my children. <laughs> I'm like, shut up, smile, you know? So, so I'm not actually... Uh, I'm not actually present. Uh, I'm just trying to capture it. And uh, as we read this passage, particularly with lots of symbols and different kinds of language and lots of images, your temptation is going to be to try to capture it. You're going to read in verse 3 that God sitting on his throne has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. You're going to be like, what are those? What color are they? What does that mean? Um, my encouragement to you uh, would be to don't, not try to capture this passage. Just take it in. Just enjoy it. Just get a sense uh, for what is communicating about the glory of God and what it would be like to be in God's presence. So uh, we'll read Revelation 4, uh, verses 1 to 11. Again, I'd encourage you guys, don't get lost in the details. Try to see uh, the big picture, what it's like in God's presence. So here we go. Revelation 4, verses 1 to 11. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Father, we know uh, that this passage is true, and we also know that we have such a dim sight of you this morning, and if we could just see so much would be healed and changed and made right in us, and so uh, we pray to that end this morning, that as we open the scriptures and attempt to understand them, that you would, you would come and help us to see a clear, right, and compelling vision of you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brief survey of the room. Who here has seen the movie The Wizard of Oz? All right, okay, that's, that's pretty good for millennials, no offense, all right? Uh, it's an American classic, all right, from the 1930s. Uh, story of a girl named Dorothy and her little dog, Toto. Uh, they end up, after a tornado picks up her house, they end up in the magical land of Oz. And all Dorothy wants to do the whole movie is go home. And all the people around her tell her if she can just get to the wonderful Wizard of Oz. He's such a great guy. He's so powerful. He does great things. He will help them. And Dorothy, uh, through many trials, is finally in Oz and finally before uh, this wizard. And he's speaking in this loud, terrible voice. He appears... Uh, on a screen green with a very fearsome-looking face. There's fire coming up all around him, and uh, they're asking him questions, uh, trembling. And uh, he actually refuses to help them. He says, come back tomorrow. And uh, as he's raging and getting mad and the fire keeps shooting up and his voice is booming, Toto runs over to this little curtain uh, at the side of the room and pulls it back and reveals a scrawny old man who is very clearly working machinery that projects this image. And uh, when he sees that they see him, he yells, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The wonderful Wizard of Oz was a fake. And he apologizes and admits he was a humbug. He turns out to be kind of a, he turns out to be kind, if uh, kind of weak. He even offers to help them, but behind the curtain, he wasn't powerful at all. He was just a human being, not an even particularly good one. And there is a modern assumption in our age that that is what God is like. He might put on a good show. Um, he might, uh, there might be lots of stories about him. There might be lots of talk. He might have some really great rules and morals. But behind the curtain, he's just kind of a humbug or kind of boring. Uh, maybe he's grandfatherly and, and, and kind and good, but he's nothing overwhelming, nothing special. Could that be your view of the Lord? Um, not what you say, right, but what you really think. Uh, your emotions and desires reveal you here. If you typically feel more excited about a day full of college football yesterday or a new movie or a first date than you feel about coming to worship on Sundays. This is your 
to you of the Lord. Those things are more interesting to you than God. He's not really all that interesting. He's not worth getting your blood pressure up over. If you're more afraid of losing your job or spending your entire life alone than you are of sinning, this is probably your view of God. You don't really believe in the glory of the one you're sinning against or tremble at his fierce wrath against sin. Well, after we see God speak to his church in verse uh, chapters 2 and 3 and says some pretty harsh things, and before we see the rest of Revelation unfold with all of its judgments and all of the crazy things happening, we are invited to see behind the curtain at who God is. And what we find there is certainly not a fake or a humbug or someone boring and uninteresting. All, what we find is actually that all the talk about God's glory and all the talk about his fierce judgment, all the talk about who he is, those have actually just been a whisper of the truth. Today we'll see the creator ruling over all, worthy above all, and worshipped by all in his presence. Uh, real quick, before we uh, actually jump into the passage, I want to just kind of help you guys get behind the curtain with me. A uh, couple things. Uh, if you've been in class, this will be kind of review for you. you. You've heard a lot about how Revelation works. Uh, but we are uh, reading um, a prophetic vision. Okay? And one of the ways in which prophetic visions communicate is through symbolism. So, example, uh, Jasper and Carnelian in chapter 3. Uh, if you Googled, or uh, verse 3, if you Googled Jasper and Carnelian, you would find these are both kind of orange orangey, bright jewels, all right? John is not intending that we see God as the color orange, okay? Uh, he uh, is not necessarily a Clemson fan, okay? All right, whatever Buster says, okay? Just kidding. He's, he's, don't, sorry, don't put that on the website if it's recorded, okay? Whew, I don't want to get fired, okay? But no, no, the, the Jasper and Carnelian, okay, uh, taken uh, in context of their worth, and their radiance relative to other jewels in the ancient world, they give us a picture of something about God. They're not intended to be uh, literally interpreted. When you uh, read uh, in verse 8, it's actually a very important verse, uh, the living creatures are full of eyes all around and within. That's not meant to be, like, spooky, okay? Like, it's not meant to be Halloween-y, all right? Uh, the, uh, the, the point is, and we'll see in a second, that what do you do with eyes? You see. So something about this creature, they have, they have this vision of God, okay? So that, that's the idea. That's how we're going to approach this passage. It's going to help us to not draw really crazy pictures in our heads, all right? Uh, there's symbolism here. The idea is, man, heaven, you can't communicate heaven, right? But you can give pictures that help us get close. Uh, second thing about Revelation, uh, it's very much rooted in the Old Testament. If you're not an Old Testament reader, uh, you're kind of at a disadvantage when we approach Revelation because it's so full. Uh, there are three parts of the Old Testament that are really on display in Revelation 4. You've got the book of Ezekiel, uh, the book of Isaiah, and Genesis. We'll see those come up. just want to let you guys know that. Okay, let's jump in. Uh, first, we see behind the curtain that God is ruling over all. Uh, verse 2 says, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Uh, the throne is the dead center of this passage. In fact, we'll continue to see the throne come back through the rest of the book. Everything seems to flow from the throne. But did you notice the, the word throne occurs 13 times in these 11 verses? And it, it's, it's, there's all these weird prepositions 
which are just words of location uh, about the throne. Notice in verse 2, there's a rainbow around the throne. Oh, sorry, there's, that's verse 3. There's a rainbow around the throne. There are uh, elders around the throne in verse 4. There's thunder coming from the throne before the throne is a sea of glass. Uh, what's the point of all those words? I think the idea is that the throne of God, where he sits, doesn't stand, he's not working, okay? Where he sits, exalted over all, that's the dead center of heaven. Everything flows from the throne. Everything we know about God here flows from the throne. Um, and the throne was partly a political message in John's day. Uh, John lived in a world where there was an emperor who claimed to be a god. He sat on a throne, uh, Caesar, probably uh, Nero. Um, I think the idea of having God appear on a throne in Revelation 4 is just reminding us that Nero might sit on a throne, but he doesn't sit on the throne, right? Donald Trump might be president. We might have lots of battling senators and congressmen, but they are not ruling America. God rules over all. This image of a throne asks us, where is your primary allegiance? But uh, the main idea, I think, communicated by this throne is that God rules over all, that he has a right as the creator of the universe to rule the world however he sees fit. Um, He is a perfect king. Nothing happens apart from his will. He owns and runs creation. He's allowed to do whatever he pleases with it. Um, Again, we're going to, for the next couple months, if you hang with us, we're going to be seeing lots of passages. We'll start in Revelation 6, all the way to 16. We'll see lots of passages where, where God pours out judgment on the people who resist him. That the people who actually, uh, the evildoers in the world who hurt his people, um, the people who resist him, who refuse to worship him, we'll see at the end of time, God's going to pour judgment out on them. And there's a question, especially in our day, um, how can a good and loving God judge anyone? How can God be good and all-powerful and people still end up uh, in hell? And I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question. There's not, uh, this is not the only way. But I would just say that if that's your question, all right, you haven't seen God. If you could get a glimpse of him exalted on his throne, ruling over all, if you could just open that door into heaven, look upon him, there would be no question about the goodness and righteousness of what he does. There'd be no grumpiness about what's going on in your life right now, if you could see. But uh, the first thing we see here, again, is that God is ruling. The dead center of heaven is a throne. Um, Here's a question we just asked in application, okay? Will you submit to God's rule? It's crazy that the king, with all power, with all authority, right, gives you a free will. You make choices, right? This morning before you, again, the offer of God in the gospel of Jesus is before you, right? The Bible tells us that that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, right? Before all the judgment that's going to come, okay? God has given all of us, right, the opportunity to come and place our faith 
in Jesus to humble ourselves, to admit our sin, to trust him, and to be saved. The God on the throne wants to welcome you into his presence. But we have to submit to what he's provided. What's the first way you submit to God's rule? You submit to the gospel. You recognize that you're a sinner, right? You trust that only the life and death of Jesus can save you, and you give your life wholeheartedly to him. That's repentance and faith. If you are far from the Lord, or maybe you've been pretending for a long time, right? You've been a churchgoer, but you've never actually embraced Jesus. The first way you submit to this king on his throne is by submitting to the gospel, by embracing Christ. Many of you guys have done that. You've humbled yourself, trusted Christ, but you kind of look around at your life. You look around at all the stuff you don't enjoy. You look around at what seems to be American politics tearing the fabric of our nation, right? And you're tempted to think perhaps that your life or your world is a little out of control, or you're tempted perhaps to to raise some questions, right? To kind of... uh, be like, come on, God, what are you doing? And uh, what God requires of you this morning is that you embrace his control over your life. You are who you are, all right? You're in the circumstances you're in. You're dealing with the good and the bad you have because the one who rules over all has given you these things, right? Uh, you are not your own. And I think joy begins not with having our questions answered and having the things we don't like healed joy begins with submitting to the lord's sovereignty over your life so god is ruling he's in charge Uh, but for most of us especially as americans for most of us saying that god's the king you should deal with it you should submit to him is not enough okay we uh as a generation we don't really buy that about authority Right? We've all known bad authorities. We see dictators in the world. We've experienced bad bosses or professors who use their authority for wrong reasons. And all of us, almost all of us, uh, break traffic laws as much as we want to, right? And then get mad when we get pulled over, right? <laughs> How dare you? I was only going 17 over, you know? Like, ugh! Right? We love authority, right? Um, but behind the curtain, seeing in God's presence, we don't just see... That God has authority. We see that God has infinite worth. That in fact, uh, his rule over the world, his rule over your life, flows out of the beautiful, radiant, overwhelming presence of God. First, uh, look at his radiance, which is just a word that communicates the light, the glory flowing from him. Look at, uh, look at verse 2. There's a throne in heaven, one seated on the throne. Verse 3, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Again, Jasper and Carnelian are bright, radiant stones. Uh, This rainbow with an appearance of an emerald, this is kind of a difficult uh, phrase, but it kind of gives this picture of a halo, a halo of all colors of light flowing from God's throne. Um, I think the idea is that the one who is seated on the throne is bright and beautiful. That seeing him is seeing a kaleidoscope of beautiful, overwhelming light. Uh, Let me just give you a couple of images. Maybe this will help. Uh, First, think of the sun, okay? On a clear day, 
at 4 p.m. you're driving down Long Point Road and it hits you right in the eyes, windshield, you, try, you can't, okay, you're entirely blinded, okay? Just so much brightness, you hit somebody, not your fault, you just keep going. Just kidding, don't do that, okay? All right? But you've all had moments, you've all had moments where you think to yourself, if I got in a wreck right now, it's legitimately not my fault. Like, it's so bright, okay? Think of that, okay? And then think of, uh, think of what it looks like a couple hours later, all right, on one of those perfect days when the sun starts going down, and the sky just begins to be painted orange and pink and red. Uh, and there's a sun, sunset. You know, we've had some brilliant sunsets in Charleston. I think if you combine those two things, sunset with this bright, overwhelming light, you can come close to having an image of what John saw. Uh, notice also, most likely, this passage is meant to communicate that the light shining from God's throne is a gracious light that is full of his love. Notice there is a rainbow with an appearance of an emerald. Again, all right, Revelation is always quoting and alluding to the Old Testament. When's the last time we saw a rainbow in the Bible? It was in Genesis 9 uh, when God made a covenant with Noah. Right? He, he told Noah that after he flooded the earth that he would never do it again, that he would be good to Noah, and he symbolized that with a rainbow. And so this light coming from God's throne is his love and his goodness made visible. Um, but notice also, he doesn't just have this beautiful radiance. His presence is overwhelming. Notice verse 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Uh, This is actually from the book of Exodus. uh, When God brought his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments, he appeared to them by setting a mountain on fire. Uh, If you read read the account, everyone is terrified. Uh, Creation seems to begin to melt. I think that's... uh, that's the idea here. This is kind of like uh, in the book of Job when Job cries out to God wanting an answer and God appears to him in a giant tornado. Um, the idea is when God becomes visible, when his presence becomes manifest, it's a little bit scary. Uh, reality starts to melt. And we've all been caught off guard by maybe a, surprise, a surprisingly loud thunderclap every now and again, like, whoa, my house is shaking, right? But uh, I think this is a little bit more like being on a boat in the ocean during one of those thunderstorms. You're exposed. There's some danger. I think that's the idea here. Notice again one more thing, that that God in his worthiness is separated from and above his creation. Look at verse 6. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is probably the most difficult image Uh, maybe the second most difficult, I think. I don't know this, but I think this is a reference uh, to Genesis 1 where God separates the heavens and the earth with an expanse. Um, Notice this sea is like glass, like crystal. I think it gives the idea that God is exalted above uh, his creation. Of course, we hear a lot about how God is with us. It's easy to forget that God is also far above us. The creator is different than his creation. So because his radiance is beautiful and his presence is overwhelming, 
and because he is exalted above creation, the people in heaven cry out in verse 11, worthy are you. He is worthy of praise. The main idea of Revelation, what is going on in heaven, is that everyone is recognizing that God is a treasure, that he's the most precious reality in the universe. So God is worthy. Will you see it? Will you turn away from those small views of God? Will you recognize that what's really going on in your heart as you behave in different ways, what's really going on is you are seeing other things as more beautiful than God. And there's this uh, uh, character in The Lord of the Rings. Um, Most of you guys have seen those movies. Some of you haven't. But there's this character uh, called Gollum or Gollum or however you pronounce it. I can't do a good impression, okay? Uh, But he is a character who's been in possession of one of the most precious and evil objects ever made for a very long time, uh, the ring of power, the center of this whole you know, giant story, movies, whatever. Uh, and this ring was very evil. It looked very beautiful. It drew people to it. But when they got it, it twisted them and used them. And uh, over the years, it extended Golem's life, but kind of took him from being a human, or something like a human, to this alien, gross, twisted being. The most horrible part of all this is that Golem called the ring my precious, my precious. And that actually sounds a lot like Romans 1, right? When Romans 1 says that they, as in all of humanity, they traded the glory of God for a lie. And they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. What's the biggest issue in your life? What's the root of all the behaviors that leave you feeling guilty? Is that you have traded the glory of God in this passage. What your heart and soul were made for. You've traded it for something else. You've set your eyes on something else. And maybe the hardest part about this is that most of the things that we set our eyes on and focus on are actually good things. Um, We all have lesser loves, right? Most of us in here have the desire for romance and marriage. Many of us long for success. We want to have our needs provided for. Everybody enjoys a good nap, right? We enjoy security. Those are good things, okay? Uh, But the moment these desires, these good things, become the center of our lives, the moment they become the thing that we behold and long for, they become demonic. Uh, John Piper said this, romantic, about, he was specifically talking about the desire for marriage. He says, romantic love is a wonderful gift, but a terrible God. C.S. Lewis goes even further and says, we may give our human loves the unconditional allegiance which we owe only to God. When we do that, those loves become gods, then they become demons then they destroy us and destroy themselves. You guys can probably look back on your week and see times when the good things that are okay to love have taken place of the main thing and they have begun to destroy and twist your life. So if you want to see God, if you want to be able to catch a glimpse of this 
beauty and to enjoy it and to do what you were made for, you need to put your lesser loves in their place. Don't leave them. Don't say, man, I'm, you know, I'm going to quit my job. Right? Don't say that. All right? I'm, I'm going I'm to lose all my money. Don't, don't say that. Okay? Say, put them in their proper place. They will flourish when you are focused on seeing the glory of God. So behind the curtain, God is ruling, and he is worthy. He is the most precious reality in the universe. But notice, he is not the only person in this passage. Um, because he is ruling and worthy, he is worshipped by all in his presence. He's worshipped by everyone who sees him. We're going to see here for a second uh, the main purpose of each of our lives, the, things that, the thing that fulfills all of our desires, and the thing that creation has been doing for ages. We're going to see the worship of God. Uh, really quickly, um, let me just define worship in a simple way. Uh, worship, very simply, is focusing on and responding to God. It's focusing on and responding to God. You could also say that it's a, it's a heartfelt response to seeing the beauty and glory of God. As Jesus said in John, I think, sorry, John 6, I missed the reference on my sheet. Uh, the Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. The idea is we see the truth, whether that's in, a, in an hour when we're in worship together, right, or whether it's in our Bibles on Monday morning, or whether it's right now, we see the truth, we see it, we see God in the truth, and we respond to him in our spirits. And this happens uh, in all sorts of life. Uh, we, we, we do it uh, together as a group, right, on Sunday mornings, but it's meant to be a part of our entire lives. We're meant to focus on and respond to God as our way of life, right? Um, the people in this passage do it by sight. They see God literally. Um, we do it by faith. We'll get there in a moment. But that's worship, okay? So notice all of these people worshiping or focusing on and responding to God in this passage. First, we see the four living creatures. Fun to interpret here. Okay, four living creatures. Uh, verse 6, they are around the throne. Uh, the, the language there indicates they're the closest created beings to the throne here. They have front row seats. Uh, the description of these creatures is probably the strangest part of this passage. It actually comes from Ezekiel 1. Uh, but here's what it says. There are four living creatures. This is in verse 6. Full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third with the face of a man. The fourth like an eagle in flight. We see they have six wings and they are full of eyes. What is going on there? So uh, there are a few ways uh, people have interpreted this. I think the best way to see it is that these are the highest beings that have ever been created. So... Uh, just notice a few ways are described. You might be wondering what the uh, lion, ox, man, eagle is. In the ancient world, the lion was the fiercest of all animals. The ox was the strongest of all animals. The man, man, men were the smartest of all animals. And eagles were the fastest of all animals. Okay? So uh, the idea here is these are the strongest, smartest, fastest, smart, uh, swiftest animals ever created. They're the, the highest thing, the most beautiful, glorious, biggest, strongest, whatever thing God has ever created. If one appeared in this room, if we could exist with one in this room, we would be strongly tempted to worship them. Uh, notice here they each 
have six wings. This comes from Isaiah 6. It's another vision of God, and there are, these, there are these angels surrounding God, and they're flying with two of their wings, and with two of their wings, they're covering their face and feet because God is so holy. Right? Um, but notice, these creatures, these people who get front row seats to God, they are overwhelmed by his presence. Notice what they are not doing. None of these four living creatures are celebrating. I'm the strongest person in the universe. You know, that's so great. Or no, no one's like, hey, we got front row seats. Let's take a selfie of the throne. You know, like, like nobody's doing that. Like there's no, there's no celebration of who they are, what they have or where they are. Right. All they're doing, all they're doing is worshiping God. They are wholly focused on him. Because we see here, what is the main thing these creatures do? Notice it says twice into verse 6 and the end of verse 8. They are full of eyes in front and behind, all around and within. They basically are vision incarnate. All they do is see. That's the whole thing they do. They see God's glory. Um, And what do they do in response to seeing God's glory? It says here they constantly worship God for his glory. I look at it, it says here that they, uh, they, day and night, they never cease. So they are continually, consistently worshiping. They never run out of glory to worship. Um, notice what they say. They say that God is holy, holy, holy. And he was and is and is to come. They celebrate God's holiness. They celebrate God's life. Notice, uh, when I say holiness, most people think like dreariness or dustiness or uptightness, right? Uh, Holiness in the scriptures actually means something that is different and unique. Say that God is holy. It means that God is utterly different than anything else in creation. He's not like us. That's great news, actually. If God were like us, he would have an end. If God were like us, he would be selfish. If God were like us, he would not pour out love and grace. He would not be beautiful, infinitely beautiful. So these creatures, and they celebrate God's eternal life. Just uh, something to point out here. All of us here have what theologians call a contingent life, which means that our lives come from somewhere else. Uh, God has eternal life. He's always existed. Um, If you could just see what eternal life looked like, you too would fall down and worship. Again, the creatures aren't the only ones around the throne. We also see 24 elders. Uh, I'm not 100% sure that I'm right here, but I do know these are uh, a representation of God's people victorious. So these are the saints in glory. Uh, The 24, that could be 12 plus 12, 12 heads of the tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Don't worry about that. That's confusing. Okay. Uh, But notice they are described with the very same rewards that Jesus promises in Revelation 2 and 3. They are on thrones. They are clothed in white garments, and they have golden crowns on their head. All the things Jesus promised to people who are victorious, okay? So notice, these are people who have won at life, okay? They've conquered. They've succeeded. They endured with Jesus, and now they are in glory. They have their own thrones, these places of honor, right? They're, they're white. They have crowns. They have a prize. And they are not up in heaven saying, look at my glorified biceps, right? 
They are not up in heaven so excited that they can fly or that glorified craft beer tastes so good, right? Like they're not even saying, I'm so happy I get to see my family members, right? None of that. It's not even on their minds at all. All they do, verse 10, whenever the four living creatures worship, the 24 elders fall down off of their thrones before him in worship, and they cast their crowns. Notice, it's almost like they take this reward they have won and throw it away, right? They jump off their places of honor. They take their crowns, which symbolizes everything they've won. They throw it at God's feet. It's almost like they're saying, compared to you, Lord, everything I've won, everything you've given me, all the glory I'm enjoying, this paradise, it's nothing. I lay it at your feet. And uh, they do so because they see. So there's a common thing uh, a lot of people say, uh, especially Christians, they say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about blank. It's always something, right? And kind of, we almost say this with a tone of voice of like, I have a bone to pick with God, you know? Or uh, we talk about heaven and we, you know, we think uh, there's there's all these books about all the things we're going to get to do in heaven. You know, there's going to be sports there. I don't, I don't know if there's going to be sports there, guys, okay? Like, we're going to, I even, well, I won't go there. Never mind. Um, uh, but people, like, there's this question in many Christians' minds, like, are we really just going to stand around and sing? Like, that does not sound good to me, okay? And there will be more things we do in heaven besides standing around and sing. Just read Revelation. Lots of things we do, okay? But this passage tells us that if we appeared before God in his glory, we would not have any questions to ask. We would not have any worries about what am I going to do on Friday night when I get tired of singing, okay? None of that. His presence would overwhelm you. Uh, If you're a believer, you would be transformed and enabled to enjoy him forever. You would finally be satisfied. You would finally be unbreakably happy. From the depths of your heart, you would cry, worthy, and to your great delight, be able to do so forever and ever. And if you're not a believer and you appeared before God, there'd be no bitterness, no questions, right? There would be an overwhelming, terrible awe. And the Bible says every knee will bow, right? Every knee will bow, even the knees of people who resist God to the end, because there is simply no other response to God's presence. So God is worshipped by all. And the question I'd just like to ask and begin to close with is, will you join in? Will you join this heavenly chorus? Don't you know you were made for it? Don't you know it was made to satisfy you? Just real quickly, one thing I think that keeps us from joining in is that we are too focused on the crowns. We're too focused on ourselves. We're looking inside. We are remarkably self-focused. Just notice that the highest, greatest, uh, most impressive people in the universe are wholly captivated with the Lord. I think maybe you just pray this morning that, that God would free you from focusing on yourself, that he would enable you, that he would give you the ability to look to him. One more thing I'd like you to notice as we close. 
Maybe this whole time you've been thinking, okay, I hear that, I see that, I'm supposed to worship, right? God's glorious, but I'm still not feeling it. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do with all of those lesser loves taking over my heart. Notice carefully how John gets into God's presence. Look at the very beginning. He's a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must, what, what must take place after this. Notice this first voice is from Revelation 1.11. This is the voice of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Notice that John is invited into the presence of God. He is enabled to see God in his glory through the risen Lord Jesus. In other words, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ living, dying, being raised, that is what enables your worship. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. All right? The, the scriptures say in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 that we gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus. As a sinner, as someone with many preciouses, with many lesser loves, you can come and be forgiven and give the real thing in Jesus. So, my last encouragement is to take up this invitation to come up and see, to leave your lesser loves. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just thank you for this morning, and we thank you for that you are enough to satisfy us. Uh, I just confess the many ways I do not really believe that. I confess the other things I look to you and just plead that you deliver me. Pray, pray just for opened eyes in this room, for people who are far from you, that you would enable them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.